Well, good morning, Randolph Street family, and happy Lord's Day to each of you. Thank you for gathering with us this morning. We say this often when we walk in this sacred space that we gather in week in and week out throughout the year on the Lord's Day. We do so with one aim, one objective. I trust that is your heart this morning to gather and to worship our great and glorious God, to lift up our voices and sing praises to our God, to submit our hearts in faith to the work of his spirit through his word as the gospel is proclaimed through the reading of the scripture, through the preaching of scripture. And I pray that that is your heart here this morning as we gather on this Labor Day weekend. It looks like COVID and rain and the devil and Labor Day has conspired against us a little this morning, but we are glad you are here. And those of you joining us online, thank you for being a part of our gathering. Grab your bulletins, just a couple of things to point out uh, quickly before uh, we begin our gathering. If you do not grab the free book by Dane Ortland, uh, provided to us by Crossway, uh, I do not see copies on the back table, but I know we have a bunch left. There's a box back there somewhere full of them. Uh, we have a couple of upcoming classes in regard to that men's class or women's class, but we encourage you to grab that book and uh, hand it to others that you may know who you think would benefit from it. Uh, it is an incredible uh, small book that we would highly recommend you to engage in uh, as a number of our church family already have and will be soon, but those books will be on the back table. Russ is getting them out now. We have 100 plus copies, I think, still available, uh, so please grab those as you have time. And then really, I'm just going to point you to one other announcement, the ministry update, uh, second announcement down. Um, our, our elders are continuing to monitor the whole COVID thing in our community, uh, how we should respond within our various ministries. Uh, that involves implementing various safety measures, uh, canceling certain meetings, adjusting schedules as needed. Our goal in this is to have wisdom. Uh, often our high bar is just don't do anything stupid. Uh, but we want to have wisdom in this and how we navigate this with our church family. Uh, so be watching your weekly email for adjustments, changes we may make. Uh, today's one of them. Uh, we canceled our own mission together meal. Uh, as we looked around our community, I've talked with a couple of churches that are, effect, uh, that are being affected by COVID right now. So we're just trying to be wise. Uh, thank you for your patience with us. On the back table is a paper that I wrote that our elders and deacons edited, reviewed uh, for you to help you understand uh, how we think about government and how we respond to government in this particular situation. Uh, grab that. It'll help you uh, understand why we've done what we've done in the past and how we'll navigate the waters uh, that are before us. Uh, our primary objective is we want to glorify God uh, by honoring those he's placed over us in authority. Uh, so grab that paper, read it if you will. Um, and uh, if you have questions, comments, concerns, we are always, always open and available uh, to talk with you. Okay, note the other announcements, women's exodus study coming up, to every door, the whole new church software stuff that'll be coming out in the coming months. Hopefully that will serve our church family well. Uh, we're excited about that. Okay, all that's out of the way. Uh, let's take just a few moments in the busyness of normal Sunday mornings and rain and all the stuff that's happened to you this morning. Let, let's quiet our hearts before the Lord. Let's ask the Lord uh, to do a good and holy work in us as we gather together as God's people this morning.
stand together, if you would, and let us now hear the word of God call us, the people of God, to worship this morning. Psalm 25, this is the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. This is the word of the Lord for us. continue our work through the Heidelberg Catechism and just impressing upon our heart the truth of God's word as it is set forth through these catechisms as they gather truth and set them forth for us to be able to remember. The one today is a critical one as they all are as it thinks about the gospel and that is the question regarding 
forgiveness. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God... these glorious truths from your word, what you through Christ have accomplished for us, what you have given to us, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we are humbled by that. We are overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude for this truth. Lord, we know our own hearts. We recognize our sinful behavior. We recognize the struggles, as the Catechism says. We recognize that even as your children. And Lord, we are grateful that you do not count that sin against us. Lord, we are thankful for the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life, living in every way according to the law, and then dying for us, taking the judgment that is ours upon himself that we might be free from that. Lord, thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ, freedom to live for you, to worship you, to serve you, the freedom we do not have to live under the guilt and the power of, of sin, but that we have power through Christ and forgiveness through the cross. And so, Lord, we come to you, we thank you, we rejoice, we sing to you, Lord God, I pray that our hearts would cry out to you in giving you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.
hearts to the reading of God's word. A reading from the Gospel of John. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. First epistle. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. They may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's stand and sing together. We're going to sing a new song. We'll sing the first verse twice, so feel free to join the second time.
Pastor Jason mentioned last week, we're taking this time over the next few weeks or months as we study through the book of Acts to change our focus from reading the text of scripture that we'll be speaking on to really focusing on the nations and the neighborhood around us. This past week I had the joy of reading an article in Voice of the Martyrs about a man older than I am. He was exposed to the gospel in World War II. He was from Somalia, a very devout Muslim, and just had no thought at all of the things of Christ, really knew nothing of Christ. He was exposed to the gospel later on as a policeman. He was uh, given detail, and he was in Kenya at that time. He grew up in Somalia, was in Kenya, and he was overseeing um, an event in the city of the missionary preaching the gospel. And that day as he listened, God opened his heart and saved him. That man went on, the only person of his clan to be a Christian, to plant 23 churches throughout Kenya. I was interested in reading through, they had several pictures of the churches that he had planted. And I thought about the early church and the way that they would meet, not in nice buildings like this, but they showed him sometimes in just a rough shed with little wooden benches with maybe a dozen people there sitting, listening to the preaching of the gospel. But the power of the gospel. So as we engage in praying, don't always have the mindset of the American church. But as we go through the book of Acts, get the mindset of what the church looks like among the nations, many times meeting under great persecution. So let's pray for them today. Also, we continue to pray for our network churches, churches that we have a partnership with throughout the Appalachian region. We're going to kind of start up in the north area, pray for Redeemer Community Church in Pittsburgh, and then come down to Philippi and pray for Living Water, Pastor Wade there in that area. So let's take these to the Lord. Our Father, we rejoice to see your sovereign power not only displayed here in America, but throughout all the nations in places that are so dark and difficult, such persecution against you, a hatred toward you and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, when we see the evidence of your sovereign work in a man's heart, such as the one I read about this week, how it causes my own soul to rejoice in knowing your hand is at work all around the world. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the work of your spirit that regenerates and gives light, that calls people to yourself and gives them a vision to go forth and proclaim the gospel to all nations. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that goes with us, that rests upon us, O oh God, and helps us to proclaim that message. I pray, Lord, that we would be a bold people in our own neighborhoods, in our own families, and throughout the west side here in Charleston. But Lord, we thank you that this impact is around the nations. We pray for other churches in our region today that are lifting up the gospel, the truth of your word. We pray for Redeemer Community Church there in Pittsburgh. We pray for some of the needs that they have of a permanent location to be able to meet. I pray, Lord, that you would provide for them. I pray for Dan as he preaches today, Lord, that as he lifts up 
your word to those people that you would cause their hearts to be drawn to you, to be edified. Lord, that their worship today would exalt your holy name. I pray for Brother Wade there in Philippi. Lord, I do ask as his heart desires to be able to reach his own city, Lord, that you would save people there in Philippi and bring them to living water, that they might hear your word taught and proclaimed, and Lord, that they could be discipled, be made disciples through that giving of truth. I pray that you would continue to encourage Wade and his wife Jamie and their children. I pray, Father, that you would watch over them and build that work in that area. Lord, we are grateful, again, for the truth of the gospel. It is the word of God in grace. Oh, Father, how we love that description. And so, Lord, we pray that that word would go forth today from this pulpit and around the world for the glory of your name. strength within this sorrow there is beauty in our tears and you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear you are working in our waiting you're sanctifying us and beyond our understanding <clears throat> you're teaching us to trust your plans are still to prosper you have not forgotten us you're with us in the fire and the flood you're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. You are wisdom unimagined. Who can understand your ways? Reigning high above the heavens, reaching down in endless grace. You're the lifter of the lowly, compassionate and kind. You surrounding, you uphold me. And your promises are mighty light. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign Even what the enemy means for evil, 
You turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Thank you, Ashley, for ministering to us this morning. Such wonderful truth in that song. I wish I was that gifted in anything in my life. Anything. Thank you, Ashley for serving us this morning. If you will take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Acts. We are continuing our study this morning that we have just launched uh, here in the pulpit of Randolph Street these last few weeks. Today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 1 beginning at verse number 12. Since we are reading extended narratives in the coming weeks and months, we will not be reading them all at one time. Instead, we'll track with them through the sermon again this morning. Uh, before I get into this particular sermon, two things. One, just thank you for how you listen and engage Tim and I. We talk about this at least every other week, often weekly, of how well you, as the sermons are being preached, as the Word of God is being proclaimed, how well you engage and listen. We can see it in your eyes and uh, we hear it in your words after the sermons when you engage with us throughout the week. I, I do have uh, to confess some sin. It's in my heart from this past week, however. Uh, the only thing you mentioned from last week's sermon, the only thing you mentioned from last week's sermon was Bron Vickers' quote. That was it. And he's here this morning. I, I think he knows that. But he's just here to gloat at me today. Uh, and you loving his quote from last Sunday. I've, Bron has been just a good friend of me. He's been a good friend of Randolph Street. He has served me so well. Brian, I told him last week they're going to start paying you uh, for your weekly advice that he gives me through uh, these texts that we're working through. So thank you for how you listen, how you engage, how you always come to this moment with a deep desire to know what God has said to us. Last Sunday, if I could summarize it in just a couple of sentences, last Sunday, we learned that the apostles now were stepping into this new era, right? We're going to come back to this more in just a moment. But they're, they're stepping into this new era, this era that is now marked by the work of the Spirit as the Spirit fills them, as he baptizes them, and he, he moves in this era to glorify Jesus. This is what the apostles are now stepping into. This is not the time of the consummation. Remember, that was the question that was asked last Sunday by the apostles. It is not the time for the end of all things. Instead, it is the time for mission. As empowered by the Spirit, the people of God now will build the kingdom of God, not through the might of military, not through the strength of an army, but they will build the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel as they're empowered by the Spirit of God. This is the mission now. 
This is the mission that echoes through the church, through history, even up until our day here at Randolph Street. This is, this is the same mission we find ourselves on. This is the same era we live under, the work of the Spirit bringing glory to Jesus among the nations. We, we live there in that. So though Acts is so different, last Sunday I commented just how unique the apostolic area is, how unrepeatable this era is, yet we live in that same environment, the mission that Christ has called us to as a church, empowered by the Spirit to preach the gospel as Christ builds his church. So last Sunday was the launching of the book of Acts. As Luke the historian takes us into these moments, these fundamental moments when he, Jesus, is setting aside his apostles to now lay the foundation, Ephesians 2.20, of the church. Today we're moving into a quite different text, beginning at verse 12. We're going to work ourselves all the way through the end of this chapter. There's a few things that Luke the historian is going to try to accomplish in what might feel like a kind of odd, out-of-place section of Scripture here in the book of Acts. Luke's going to bring us into the core group for just a moment, okay? This core group is unique. It's going to be, it's going to be made up of kind of several layers of people, beginning with the apostles. He's, he's going to bring us into that core group because in that core group, especially within the apostolic band of men, this, these are the men that God is now going to use, that Jesus is going to use to build his new covenant community. Right, so Luke is going to, through Peter, Luke is going to bring us into that initial kind of core group. And as I said, there's going to be layers of this core group that includes the apostles and some ladies and the brothers of Jesus. And then we're going to see it in this narrative. It's going to get out to 120 people by the time we're out of this section. Secondly, Luke's going to finish a story for us that maybe if you're a reader of the gospel accounts, you, you think needs to be finished, right? Sometimes there's these stories that are told and there's no finality to them. It's just kind of lingering out there. Well, one of those stories for the early church, or at least for the initial apostles, was that of Judas, right? When you finish the gospel accounts, we, we're kind of left with, with what it feels like an incomplete story, Judas for three and a half years tracked with Jesus and these men and now he's gone and Luke's going to pick up on this in this attempt at history Luke's going to step in he's going to kind of finish the story through Peter Luke's going to finish the story of Judas for us and it gets rather interesting it's going to lead us kind of to the third part here we're going to see the first business meeting in the history of the church all right a quorum is called 120 people and they are going to gather and they're going to conduct the first business meeting, and it is quite unique. But in that, I hope what we see is their heart. And out of that heart, we see in this 120 people, I hope that's our heart when we come to these tables in just a few moments. So let's look into this core group, if you would. Look down at your Bibles again. We're going to read this text as we work through the narrative this morning. Luke picks up now. Jesus, verse 11 10 and 11, he's ascended into the heavens. These two men robed in white, they speak to the apostles, right? Why do you stand here looking up into heaven? 
And then they come back. They're going to, they're going to address that question they had. Is, is now the time of the kingdom? They're going to come back to that. And you're going to see him come back in the same way you saw him ascend, right? You're kind of throwing a little carrot out here, right? Jesus is coming back, and that, that will be the consummation of all things. He will, he will bring everything to its final end. And then to verse 12. Then they, speaking here, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went into an upper room where they were staying. So this initial core group consists of a few men, a few ladies. We're going to see in just a moment. The disciples here, they're going to obey Jesus. If you let your eyes linger back to verse number four of chapter one, this is what Jesus charged them, right, to return to Jerusalem. And it is there that they are called by Christ to go and to wait this is what we looked at last Sunday morning. They would go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they do that. They return to Jerusalem in what must have been intense moments for them, right? Let yourself be drawn into the story here. Don't just read and pass over. Come into the story with the disciples. They have watched Jesus now ascend back into heaven. Right? He's gone. He has departed. And Jesus tells them, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to go and just wait. If you're like me, you can ask my wife, there's nothing worse in my life than waiting. And I've never experienced something this intense, right? Jesus has departed. They've given three and a half years of their life to this man and now he's gone and he says, okay, go back and just wait. And they do. They obey Jesus. Their heart is full of faith in these moments. They're waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jerusalem was a Sabbath day walk. One was permitted, according to just Jewish tradition, some scholars suggest, to walk up to seven-tenths of a mile. That's debated. It, it was a short walk from where Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives. They found themselves, as noted in this particular narrative, verse 13, in an upper room. I, that probably calls your mind immediately back to the Last Supper when Jesus would celebrate what was the last Passover with his disciples. It, it is possible, possible, that this is that upper room where Jesus spent those crucial moments with his disciples. But regardless, this is, this is the calm before the storm, right? They go and they wait, and now the Spirit is going to come. They're going to be baptized by the Spirit. He's going to empower them. The Spirit is going to turn Jerusalem upside down, if you will, in the name of the gospel. And they go and they are waiting. Persecution is going to come. Surely in these moments they're remembering all the words of Jesus that he spoke to them. Not only of the coming of the Spirit, but of the coming of persecution and trials and tribulations that they were about to step into. But now in this moment, in this narrative, they are together and they are alone and they are waiting for God to fulfill his promise of the Spirit. Now Luke is going to note who is there beginning at the end of verse number 13. Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, Judas the son of James. Then he's going to add to that. We expect those men to be here, right? But then he's going to come into verse 14. He's going to add some folks to this. They were all with one accord, devoting themselves in prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So 11 apostles are mentioned. One is absent. 
That's the glaring issue of this narrative. That's Judas. Group of ladies are mentioned in verse 14. This keeps in track with Luke, right? In Luke's gospel, remember Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. My wife told me last week I kept referring to Acts as Luke. So that's, you're probably going to hear that repeatedly through this sermon series. Luke wrote two volumes, Luke and Acts. The mentioning of these ladies kind of fits with Luke's um, attempts in previous narratives as he puts these ladies forth as playing a prominent role um, in the life and ministry of Jesus. I mean, we see them at the cross. We see them at the tomb. Luke spends a lot of time working through these ladies and their experiences of Jesus and the gospel. Mary here is singled out, which is kind of interesting. Mary, the mother of Jesus, in verse 14. I think, I was thinking of this right before I got up. I should have studied this. I think this is the last time Mary is mentioned in Scripture. Here in Acts chapter 1, we know the story there. John will be called to care for Mary. Jesus would speak that to John up on the cross. But this is her last mention. Notice at the end of verse 14, Jesus' brothers are present. Mark records for us the names of four brothers of Jesus, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. It's Mark chapter 6, verse number 3. If you're a reader of the Gospels, you know that Jesus had a really interesting relationship with his brothers. Most of us do, right? But in Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7, both Gospel writers are going to record for us that Jesus' brothers and his mother, they struggled to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. All right, in Mark chapter 3, just a few short years before this narrative, in Mark chapter 3, Mark is going to record for us that his brothers, they thought Jesus was out of his mind. It wasn't this sense of, well, I don't know, we're going to weigh this out. Jesus' brothers thought he was absolutely crazy. They, they cannot embrace this messianic posturing that Jesus was setting forth. Now, obviously, when we come to this text, Acts chapter 1, there's been a massive change in their lives. When we come to this text, and, and this is where it gets interesting for us, when we come to this text, it is likely that Jesus' mother and his brothers are fairly recent converts. That's a strange way to see this, but within the last year, maybe weeks, but year, year and a half, Jesus' mother and his brothers would be fairly new converts in this moment. One of Jesus' brothers, as we walk through the book of Acts, there, there's a name in the book of Acts that gets a little confusing. It's, it's named James. There's, there's a couple of James. There's a few James in the book of Acts. One of Jesus' brothers, James, would become a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And we'll capture this when we're preaching through Acts. There's going to be significant moments where this particular James, the half-brother of Jesus, He's going to rise up, and he's going to play a significant role in the early church. He's, he's going to be in Acts 12, and Acts 15, and Acts 21. If, if you're familiar with these texts, these, these are important moments in the history of the church. Paul is going to record for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus appeared, it seems that he appeared to James, this particular brother, alone, preparing him for these moments as they would step in to persecution and this mission that Jesus had called them to. Now, to clarify once again, there is a James that is an apostle 
he's going to carry a significant role in the church. As a matter of fact, a little Bible trivia here. What significant role does James the Apostle carry? What marked his life? That's for later. If you do, there's something first about him, you can figure that out and tell me later. These men, though, are this is the core group, right? Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and just wait. The promise of the Father is coming, the baptism of the Spirit. I'm going to, I'm going to empower you. There's a mission out there. That mission's going to be, you're going to, you're going to take the gospel to the nations. So just go now and wait. And these are the men. These are the 11 men and these, these ladies, including the mother of Jesus and these brothers of Jesus. They are kind of huddled up and they're gathered. Back to the apostles, from this point forward in the book of Acts, really it's only Peter, James, and John that are, that are going to play any prominent role or be fe featured at least. And really, if we narrow it down, it's really just Peter. And then, then there's that odd 13th apostle that we're going to talk about later. If I remember right, Brian's got a good thought in his commentary about this, but I'll, I'll, I'll come to that later. There's going to be that 13th apostle that's going to be brought in to mix, but it's really just Peter and Paul that are going to be the focus of the book of Acts. These men now are forming what we looked at last Sunday morning. They're forming, if you will, the foundation of the church. Here they are in this upper room with these ladies, with these brothers, and they are waiting for the promise of the Father to come up on them. They are preparing now for the mission of Christ. Now, I feel like I need to say something here. Most of these apostles are never mentioned again. They're the foundation of the church. And now as Luke steps into this history, most of the men in this list here of verse 13 and 14 or 13 are never mentioned again in the book of Acts. We don't know what happens to them, at least in sacred scripture. We don't have a detailed history of these men. You can go and read a variety of external historical sources that give us good guesswork, we could call it that, on what happens to these men. I mean, let me, let me just summarize some of that, if I could. I'm, and again, these are suggestions. These, this isn't certain. But these, these men right here, these 11, some suggest they take the gospel to places like the current day Soviet Union or Russia, Greece, North Africa, obviously Turkey, India, Ethiopia, Egypt. Some suggest even these men get to Great Britain, or at least one of them, and many other places. This is a little band of men. So in your mind, just geographically, picture that, whether it's true or not, we're not certain. But these men, they, they take hold of this command of Christ. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What comes of these men? Well, again, without full certainty, it seems most of them, if not all of them, suffered martyrdom, crucified and by hanging, speared potentially by, so by soldiers, maybe a vat of boiling oil, but death came upon them. This little group of men huddled in this upper room, the promise of the Father hanging over them, the work of the Spirit coming. This little group of men would give their lives 
for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. The world was not worthy of these men. Their posture in this upper room, if you look down at verse number 14, their posture in this upper room, they were of one accord, and they were devoted to prayer. I mean, Jesus said to them, they, this would be echoing in their mind, right? Ask and you receive. Well, what do they do? They, they gather in this upper room. They're in one accord. They're finding this deep unity together around the person of Jesus, and they are asking. They are seeking the wisdom of God. Just a few short weeks before, they were debating with Jesus. They were debating about who was the greatest among them. And now we find them in this upper room, gathered together in full unity, seeking God's faith. These men had been completely transformed by the grace of God. And here they are. Eleven men, a group of ladies, and Jesus' brothers. This now is the group, the, the core group, that God is going to use, that Jesus now is going to send the Spirit, and he's going to turn the world upside down through these weak, fallible, sinful men and women. Now, let's move forward a little bit here. Let's deal with Judas because it's really the kind of the primary purpose of this section. He reads off all these names, and there's a glaring omission, and that's Judas. In just a moment, like I said, we're going to see the first business meeting and his replacement. But before I step into verse 15, let me, let me read the words of Jesus, Matthew 26. This is what Jesus says about Judas. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, it would have been good for that man if he had not have been born. I mean, it's just, this is a sobering moment. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Look at verse 15. In those days, Acts chapter 1, Peter stood up among the brothers. Luke notes the company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a God to those who arrested Jesus. So apostles, ladies, brothers of Jesus, and now we're up to 120 individuals. And in this moment, before the Spirit comes, Peter's going to step in among the crowd, and he's not going to ignore the obvious. There is a man who is missing among them who had been with them for three to three and a half years. Peter is not going to ignore the obvious, but he is going to address this moment, which shouldn't surprise us. It's Peter, right? And then Peter's going to become, if you will, for the first half of Acts, Peter is going to become for us kind of the central figure who speaks on behalf of the church. And we're going to see that up to half of Acts. And this is, this is the big moment here, right? When Peter's going to stand up here in Acts chapter 1 and he's going to speak to those around him, this 120 gathered. This is a big moment. Why is that? Well, you remember what Peter had done. Peter had denied Jesus, right? On that crucial night, Peter had denied Jesus. And this is what Jesus said to Peter. This is Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, 
Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like we. But Jesus then says this, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then here it is. This is why this is a significant moment in Acts 1. When you have turned again, Peter, you strengthen your brothers. And here we are. Jesus had prayed for Peter as he walked into that night of what we would look at and say gross failure on his part. Peter had prayed for Jesus, and he prayed that his faith would not, excuse me, Jesus had prayed for Peter, and he prayed that his faith would not fail. And here in Acts chapter 1, Peter fulfills the very prayer of Jesus. He now turns, he looks his brothers and sisters in the eyes, and he strengthens them because Jesus had prayed for him. And look at what Peter says about Judas. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. I've wrestled with this all week. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. This is, this is how Peter's going to look at this and say, this is, what, this is why all that happened for Judas, this is why it happened. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Verse 17. Peter and Luke are going to add a couple of things here for us real quick. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. And just Peter going back again and reminding the disciples, the women, the 120 that are gathered there, Peter had his, or excuse me, Judas, Judas had his place among us. Judas had his place. I mean, listen, this, this is where we just can't skim over and detach our, the emotions of the moment from the narrative. I, I would imagine Peter and John and the rest of them, they grieved Judas. I think they were shocked by Judas. I don't, I don't think that came to them and they, they just step back and say, oh, we can see it coming from miles away and just move on unattached emotionally to this moment. In the upper room, when Jesus was with his disciples the night before the cross, he would identify Judas as the betrayer. And if you remember, I remember preaching through this particular text. John gets in there and he says, no one in the room knew it. Judas, Judas was identified by Jesus. Go and do it quickly. But no one in the room, there was confusion among them. No one really knew that Jesus had identified Judas in the moment. And the question is, why did Judas do what he did? And again, that John 13 text is really helpful to us. John makes it clear Satan had put this in his heart. As a matter of fact, as you move through John 13, John says Satan had entered him. I mean, what a, what a moment that, that our eyes could not see, but John brings theological insight into this moment for us. In that upper room, in the moment, John says Satan put this in Judas's heart. Satan had now entered him, and, and we see... The, the, the fallout of that particular moment, Judas will betray Jesus. Look at what Luke adds, verse 18, 19. He said, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. I mean, they're not missing here. It was wicked what Judas did. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own own language, akodama, that is, filled of blood. So according, according to Matthew chapter 27, when Judas realized that Jesus would be condemned, he changed his mind. <laughs> we don't think of Judas like this, right? But he changed his mind. 
He brought back the silver that was used to bribe him, and he acknowledged this. As a matter of fact, Matthew says, records Judas's words as these, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. I mean, Judas had this great sense of remorse once he realized that, that Jesus was condemned and he would now die. When Judas came with that remorse to the religious leaders, they had no sympathy for him. Judas would throw the silver into the temple in despair and he would depart. He would ultimately hang himself as recorded for us by the gospel writers. The religious leaders, on their hand, they would not accept those funds into the treasury. They instead called it blood money, and they used those funds to buy a field as a burial place for strangers. And like Matthew and Luke notes here, it was called the field of blood. In that sense, Judas acquired the field. Now Luke adds something here in verse number 18 that's fairly graphic to this historical moment. Judas's body, after hanging himself, would fall or at least burst open, potentially from being hung at such a height and falling, or maybe it's just the decomposition of his own body, or maybe it's some combination of, the, of both, but whatever it is, Luke steps in, he adds us some very graphic narrative. His bowels gushed out. It was a tragic end to Judas. Now, verse 20, Peter's going to help us think rightly about Judas. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Look at what he says in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, second Psalm, let another take his office. So this is how Peter's going to deal with this. All right? I, surely there are people there in this group of 120 that are grieving the, the, the tragic death of Judas. Surely they are. Maybe even Peter himself. I mean, these are, these are real people. They loved one another. They had watched and walked together. They had watched Jesus for three, three and a half years. And now here they are. And what does Peter say? The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And he takes us to two Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. So let's take those. Psalm 69. This Psalm, to my surprise, is recited numerous times in the New Testament, especially in John and Romans. This psalm is a lament, Psalm 69, that focuses on the suffering brought forth by the enemies of God. And as is typical in laments, there's a plea that rises up in the grief for God to deliver them. All right? Suffering brought forth by the enemies of God and now a plea for God to deliver through bringing judgment upon his enemies. And that's exactly what Judas has now experienced. And really, it's like the ultimate fulfillment of the psalm. The, the, the enemy of God, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. The enemy of God now has experienced the judgment of God. One particular scholar says this, Peter takes the principle expressed in Psalm 69 as a summary of how God acts and applies it to an event where God has brought his severe judgment, and that's Judas. On the backside, he cites Psalm 109. Again, Psalm 109, let another take his office or his place of leadership. It's another lament 
the cry of the righteous for God's deliverance through his judgment upon their enemies. And contained in this psalm is kind of a unique plea, if you will, that someone else, presumably a righteous person, would rise up and take the, the office or the place of leadership of this wicked person. God, bring judgment, but as you bring judgment, please bring a replacement, right? So, so presumably righteous in place of the wicked. And, and Peter looks at all that and he says, hey, this was brought forth, Judas was brought forth in this moment, and he fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. We can say this about Peter. He loved God's word. He knew God's word. And he looks at these psalms. He sees these patterns in these psalms, the righteous suffering, the pleas for God's judgment, the replacement of the wicked. And in all of those patterns, Peter looks at it and says, there's Judas. There's Judas. He's, he's like the ultimate fulfillment of these things. The, the, the scriptures were just embedded in their hearts and minds. Right? Brian could testify to this. When you go overseas and you're teaching brothers and sisters who don't have access to a lot of theological resources, they're, they're limited. They, they ha and, and hear me rightly here. All, all they have is their Bible, which, which isn't a bad place to be, right? And when you talk with them, their, their, their um, library, their thinking is very different. And this is a sad indictment on me. I, I remember being in China and teaching and they're asking questions from Habakkuk and Amos and Malachi and Ecclesiastes and Numbers. Because that, that's their resource. That's what they think about. So when they read the New Testament, their, their thinking going into the New Testament is just the Old Testament. It's exactly what Peter has here. He's got this library in his mind of the Old Testament. He looks at Judas and he says, he is the fulfillment of these patterns spoken to us by here, through the Holy Spirit, by David. Judas here is the fulfillment of these patterns. He's just kind of informing them. This is what happened. And now let's move forward, just for sake of time. Verse 21 and following. This is the business meeting now. So one of the men who have accompanied us, this is Peter still talking, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from, the, from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. These, these guys, a lot of them just have multiple names. I don't know the reason behind all that. And then there's Matthias. So Judas is gone. He's lost. And the disciples, for whatever reason, gather to, to add someone in Judas's place. For, for some reason, they wanted this to be 12 apostles. And there, there could be symbolism there, rich symbolism. Luke doesn't tell us why. Verse 21, they're looking for a man. They're looking for a man who would be with them for the entire messianic experience, from the baptism of John to the ascension, right? So this is the fullness of it now. We want someone who has been there and witnessed all of this 
from when John began baptizing and calling the nation of Israel to repentance, which would include even when Jesus was baptized, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all the way up to this moment that just happened when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. They're looking at this and saying, hey, someone, a man, who's witnessed all this, has to step into this role. For what reason? Notice what it says. He will be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus and ultimately to the nations. Someone who can stand and proclaim this truth that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. This individual that they would place in the spot of Judas now would have a crucial role of being a witness of the resurrection. And they are going to lay, going back to last Sunday morning, the foundation of the church. So they put two men forward, Joseph and Matthias. I think it's Eusebius, maybe who informed us that Matthias was a part of the 70 that Jesus would send out in Luke 10. Luke doesn't tell us that. Maybe so. They set these two men before the 120. We can make a good assumption as we read through the book of Acts that these men were godly. They were wise. They would be, as we move into the narrative, filled with the Spirit. And notice what it says about them in verse 24. They prayed and they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these men, which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So let me say two things about this business meeting. First, casting lots shouldn't surprise us here. It's a fairly common practice of the Old Testament. It was a means of determining the will of the Lord. I mean, I bet all of you in this room are familiar with Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Right? That was the thinking behind this moment. The casting of lots would determine for us the mind of the Lord. And that's how they stepped into this. This is, this is the last time in Scripture that casting of lots will be mentioned. As you move through Acts, right? Here's, here's where we're going to wrestle at times. What is normative for the church? As you move through Acts from this point forward, big decisions are going to come by being filled with the Spirit and a godly council of wise individuals. That's, that's how future decisions are going to be made. But in this moment, they cast lots content with this practice determining the mind of the Lord. I'll let you wrestle with that. Here, here's the second thing I'm going to add to this. And this is what struck me this past week, and this is what I want to be up on our time as we walk to the tables here in just a moment. The early church just trusted God. I mean, that's what struck me, just this whole narrative this week in study. They just trusted God. They knew he would provide they had no idea what was next. They could have never dreamed what was going to happen in Acts chapter 2 and persecution that would soon follow. But here we find, and I'll say this group of men, really it's 120 individuals, men, women, brothers, other early converts, they gathered together and the only thing we can see out of this group is they trusted their father. 
They knew he was going to step in and provide through trials and tribulations. What we see in the early church is a group of men and women who laid all aside and they let their hearts be lifted up in unbelievable trust of God. And here it is. Just cast lots. We'll cast lots, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, here, here's what's going to be fun for us. When we journey through Acts, we're going to see this. We're going to see men and women who just embrace God and his word. And they step out in, into difficult situations and they preach Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does, right? He moves and gifts and equips and empowers. Why? So that Jesus might be magnified in the church. And the church rises up out of frailty and weakness and struggles and they just trust God. They believe. Walking out of Acts 1, stepping into Acts 2, that's, that's what I want to press on you. Last week I said to you right at the end of my sermon, do you believe this? Jesus suffered, died, buried, rose, ascended. Do you, do you believe that? Well, what is obvious in these men and women, man, they believed it. They believed it, and now they're huddled up, and they're anticipating the work of their good God. So here in just a moment, we're going to come to these tables. When you walk to these tables, you're going to hear something said to you that has been said to the church for 2,000 years. Think of that. You're going to walk up to these tables, and our elders are going to say to you, this is the body and blood of Christ for you. They're going, to, they're going to say that to you. You return to your seats. If you're a believer in Christ, you return to your seats. I'm going to come up later. I'm going to read the scriptures, and we're going to partake together. But you're going to hear something said to you that has been said to the church for 2,000 years. What does this call our hearts to this morning? Faith, belief, trust. Right, that God is faithful, and he will give us the promises that he's given to us in Christ. He is a trustworthy God. That was in the psalm this morning. He is a trustworthy God, and we can believe, and we can trust this God. Whatever befalls us, we can wrap our arms of faith around this faithful, faithful God. This morning we come to these tables. Let us do so. Let us do so this morning with hearts of full, full of faith and trusting God. Listen, when you trust, God is glorified. When you trust your Savior in this moment, he will be magnified. May God grant that to us. If you're a believer in Christ, we invite you in just a moment to come to these tables. Right? Come freely. We acknowledge who we are. We acknowledge our only hope is in Christ. This time is to come to be spiritually nourished in the gospel as we feed up on Christ through the elements given to us today. If you're a believer, we invite you to come. If you're not a believer, you just sit and listen, observe. You, you, will, you will see something the church has done for 2,000 years. You will hear and see the gospel proclaimed. I'm gonna ask our elders to now come. As our elders are coming to prepare the tables, let me lead us in prayer, asking for God's blessings up on our time together. Join with me if you would. Well, Father, as we have talked about here the last few months, 
the most appropriate way for us to respond to the preaching of your word is now to come to these tables with hearts full of repentance and faith. It is the means you've given us, the response you've given us to the proclamation of the gospel. So I pray for those who will come and partake this morning that as they hear these words said to them, that we will embrace it by faith, the body and blood of Christ for me. We will lay hold of those promises given to us by God, you, our Father, in your Son, fulfilled the cross, the resurrection. Let us lay hold of that this morning by faith. And Lord, as, as we do, would you be glad to do a holy, holy work in our hearts this morning. If there would be unbelievers gathered among us or joining us online today, Father, may they, they see this vivid, Christ-ordained portrayal of the gospel as we hold up this bread and this cup, reminding ourselves that the only hope for the sinner, the only hope for the sinner is in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Oh, God, work that into the hearts and minds of anyone who may not believe here today. Bless now our partaking of these elements. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deacons, you can begin dismissing.
elements in hand, let us bow our heads for just a moment. Take this moment, commune with your Savior, rejoice in the faithfulness of your God. hearts are glad this morning, Father, because of Christ. Let now these truths ring over us as we partake together of these elements. That this is the body of Christ for us, sinners, and this is the blood of Christ for us, sinners. And oh, Lord, let our hearts be full of hope and joy as we set our minds up on Jesus and his gospel. We pray that in his name. Amen. Paul would say to the church that which Jesus delivered to him on the night of which we've been speaking of, the night of which he was betrayed. Jesus would say to his disciples after he had given thanks and broke the bread, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, on that evening, Jesus would take the cup and he would say to his disciples and he would say to us, the church, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And now, according to Paul, we join the church through the ages. As we eat of this bread, drink of this cup, we together proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you for this visible, tangible proclamation of the gospel. May it rest deeply in our hearts this morning as your people as we depart this facility, may we be reminded that our hope is Christ and Christ alone. For the glory of you, our God, we proclaim that by the power of your Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Stand, if you would, please.
Amen. Those words that Pastor Jason spoke, kind of summarizing the hearts of the 120, particularly the 12, they trusted. There's so much value in truth in that reality. Psalm 121 sets that forth as well. We do it as our benediction. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God's people said, Amen. Amen.